This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Wilma Beeson Jensen, who was raised in the Midwest and now lives in Gilderland. She has, at age 92, published her life story, An Iowa Teacher Blossoms in Harlem. She talks about the changes happening in Harlem in the 1960s and happening nationwide today with calls for social justice. One word, Jensen said, describes the ability to bring about change, tenacity. Later, after moving to the Capital Region, Jensen worked for change integrating special needs students into regular classes. Jensen says, you keep plugging at something and people around will put out a hand. And I want to just begin by reading one short passage that I think gives you an idea of what kind of a teacher Wilma was. She begins this chapter by saying, Jackie H., a sixth grader, smoldered with anger, resisted learning, and was convinced she would become a singer or actor when she grew up. And then it goes on to say when she entered the classroom late and was eating an apple as a confrontation, Wilma said to her, I'm sorry, but you cannot come into the classroom until you write me an essay with the title, What I Want Out of Life and What I'm Willing to Do to Accomplish It. So Jackie sat and wrote this essay, and it's quite a long essay, but I'm just going to read one part of it, because it, as I say, I think it gets to the heart of how Wilma reached her students. So Jackie is writing, just like my mother, she don't come to school to see about me, never goes on trips with my class or no things, that's what makes me don't care. Once in a while, a child would like to hear, sometimes, I love you, I care for you. Not, I don't care, and that's just what my mother says. I said, Mom, can I go out? And she says, I don't care, and just the kind of answer she gives me. Mrs. Beeson, you can talk your heart out because I want to listen. And you know, Mrs. Beeson, when trouble in your home, you can't keep your mind on your lesson. And another thing, my report card did not have no parent comment on it because she just don't care about me and no one else. My mother is not married, but she have nine children. All of us don't have the same fathers. Now this man she loves is in jail, and he will be out in ten weeks, and I hate him. So there I have now to say, but please, please take this one word. This time, I am not just saying from my mouth, I am saying from my heart, I am sorry, Mrs. Beeson, to the one and only teacher, Mrs. Beeson. Mrs. Beeson, your children should be happy to have a mother that cares for them and says to them, I love you very much. Boy, I wish I was in their shoes. So many people wanted to adopt me, but my mother would not sign the papers. Just because you did not sign, that still does not mean she loves me. From Jacqueline Holly to the dearest teacher in the world, 
Mrs. Beeson. So I think that just shows how you changed what could have been a punishment into a very thoughtful exercise for a child. Um, I was so... For Jackie, for Jackie particularly at that moment, yes. And then you followed through and found out that she had a successful life. Um, she ended up working as a dietitian in a hospital, I think you wrote. Yes, yes. The, the same hospital my daughter worked in, Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. Wow. It, well, I would just like to it, have our listeners kind of begin the journey with where you began your book and help them understand how you came from the Midwest and ended up expected, I think, by your upbringing to be a wife and mother, which you were, but not to pursue your own career. And here you ended up um, as a teacher with a master's degree and in Harlem at a really critical moment in our country's history. Um, as right now we're going through um, uprisings and demands for social justice, the 60s was certainly a time like that too. So just let's start at the beginning. Um, first of all, what made you decide to write this book? Well, first of all, it was a long time in coming. My children and many of my friends wanted me to to, to write the story of 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 all the travels and and uh, and and having three dependent children with me at the same time that I had to plan for what we were doing, where we were going, what could we afford. And lo and behold, it, it turned out we had a life. It made a, quite an interesting life. Uh, our, our, our things that we were to do, uh, which meant my children had to make the transition also from Midwest to, to New York City and the Big Apple to boot. And also, the time in our history was, uh, we think we're having a hard time today with our government, but the government was undergoing huge shifts at that time in terms of civil rights. And here we are in Harlem, which is a great seat of, of entertainment, of culture, for for the black community to to take part in, and it meant that we had a lot of learning to do, uh, the four of us, and um, I think one of the things that propelled me was the fact that I had gotten to know, of all things, my teacher in elementary school who had just come back to Iowa from from going to teach in the South, in the Black South at that time, which was very, <laughs> very testing quality. Anyway, she had decided to donate two years of her life to helping the people who had no 
no schools and no education. And so it was, that planted a seed for me, and I, I thought about it a lot before we made the move from Iowa, which was pristine and very, very there, there are stories to tell about the integration of, of, um, of the two races at that time that would help to understand what it was that we need to do somehow. We all, society-wise, need to do. It's not just uh, one group. Or, and, uh, I was looking at the TV last night. We the people. We the people. Yes, it's we the people who are going to make the changes effective. And, and I guess I, I wanted to be part of that, and I wanted my children to be part of it to grow up somehow or another with with the understanding that we are we are one government under God indivisible you know we say these words but we don't think of what they mean they give quite a challenge to people and i know my children certainly benefited in a difficult way at times because it was it was difficult to understand totally what it was that we needed to do to make to make our lives richer yes because culturally we need to share all of these things together and to enrich our own our own culture and and i i got a, i got to work in a school uh, where we had uh, we had ninety nine percent black children, maybe a, a few uh, Puerto Rican families, and always a Chinese laundry. So we had maybe one family of Chinese children. So we had we we had quite a microcosm and. It was a four-block walk to get to my school, so I was right in the midst of the community that I was trying to be helpful to, like kids like Jackie. There were many, 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 and, and it's not worth going back to, but we need to pick up the... the the, the the kind of map mapping that had been done and that's just my expression uh, to get to get moving and to keep moving in the direction that we know is a good direction for all people and Melissa I, I, that that's a whole lot of talking that I'm doing. Well, it's excellent talking. And I'm guessing the TV you were watching last night from some of the things you just said was the Democratic Convention. And you were part of a very select group. I think you wrote in your book, there were 5,000 teachers who applied and 30 who were chosen to be part 
of a program where you would become agents of change. And you yes. wrote in your book that at one of the gatherings or maybe a workshop, um, James Baldwin spoke to you, and he had this to say, teach them that their environment is wrong, mean, evil, and they are responsible for changing it. So that is a huge <laughs> charge to be given. A big, big challenge. Yes. Big challenge. And I was so pleased and thrilled at, at the, the day that he made those statements and threw the responsibility back to the people who were living there. We want this change now. And and work toward that end. It was wonderful. And I I would so like to know how many people that were there. And and I and I did that wasn't part of the curriculum, you understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the curriculum was same old, same old, same old. Not we need to change this because it's giving us a wrong direction. The outgrowth was necessary, and it was painful, as it is today. Change is painful, but people need the support along the way. And and I I, I so wish that that James Baldwin's words could be emblazoned somewhere and and so that we could really take an honest look at what we're doing. And certainly the news has helped, helped that to move ahead, too. We, and, and I'm grateful that we have so many young people that are caring and trying to implement change. Mm -hmm. There are still big pockets where they're very resistant, and certainly my training at Institute at Bank Street College, which was mind-boggling. I took 18 graduate credits in one semester, and I think in the book it's I, I wrote about that. There were two people who had nervous breakdowns. <laughs> Yeah, and several and who job, just dropped out and couldn't cope with it. Yeah, it sounded exactly. very, very intense. Yeah. And what was interesting... Was a, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I just thought what was so interesting was you were in your professional life dealing with this, but also in your personal life. You lived in a housing project where you were active as a leader in the Tenants Association, things as simple as having the doors locked. I, I think you wrote about oh. how a girl was killed um, because yes. the doors weren't locked and someone could break in. Um, so you were living in the midst of trying to bring about social change in your personal life. Well, at the same time, in your professional life, you were... Um, in the classroom and taking graduate courses and trying to be an agent for change. I mean, it, it must have been, I would think, personally exhausting, was it? It was. 
It was, and then I had three teenagers at home to cope with. And and teenagers at that phase of our history, they they too were going through their pressures, and I understood that. And to be supportive for some of that and still hang on to hang on to their their fears and things that they don't see didn't see because a teenager can't look at all those things the same way of hopefully a, a, a more mature person and yes it was a joy it was a joy to be able to do some of those things at our project and of course in New York City the projects are looked down upon um, as you know, this is uh, not a place to live. But we we were the first tenants in that building. Everything was clean, new, and and like that, we had we had a very staunch group of of people who were living there who were graduate students at, at, at three different colleges right in the walking area of, of Manhattan and Harlem. And, and how exciting that was to see change take place. We got the key to the front door. We got, we got uh, new um, doors put into uh, our, our it's a simple thing, but uh, somehow or another, it was very important that we got doors put on our, our um, oh, heck, uh, closets. our closets. Yes, the closets were without a door, and we didn't like that. We wanted finished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and then uh, to boot, the day that the... The child was bludgeoned to death in her kitchen. She had come home for lunch. Her parents both worked. And she and her sister had lunch, made lunch. And the older girl left to go back to class. And lo and behold, when they came home from work and from school, they found the the one daughter bludgeoned to death in the kitchen. Mm. And with that, that very day, Paul Robeson Jr. and myself and one other person were meeting with the housing authority to bring about the changes. We had a listing of changes we wanted done. And and the secretary came in handed a piece of paper to the chairman, and lo and behold, we got everything on the list to find out when we got back to the project that it was they had just discovered the body and and the tenants association got all of their all of their requests. In fact we have we can say demands, demands. Wow. So it it was a heady time. So and we 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 had the power to do a, a lot of good and did and with that not only did we profit but we had other projects in the in the whole city come and want to know 
how it was that we were able to accomplish all of this. Well, one word, tenacity. (laughs) And that seems to be a theme in your life, tenacity. I like that. I wonder if we could go way back to your birth. Um, You write right from the beginning of your life about how you were born with, was it bronchial pneumonia? Um, So the winters in Fargo, the weather there was thought you wouldn't live. And so you were raised at first by your grandparents in Iowa. And it just seems like such an unlikely course that your life took. I mean, you write um, how your mother would say, and this is a quote from your book, um, all you will do is get married and have a family, and you don't need an education for that. I mean, you alone in your family, among your sisters and your mother and your grandmothers, (laughs) you were the first woman uh, to pursue an education. And I just wish you could talk a little about your upbringing and uh, starting with your grandparents. It just seemed like you had some wonderful memories there, but then the move back to Fargo, just kind of walk us through some of those those early years. Well, I've I've been... I guess when I started writing the book late, and we have to underscore that, it's never too late. And all the people who may be reading this, it's never too late. I was in my mid to late 80s before I sat down seriously and, 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 and started writing this book. And uh, anyway... It all started really with those grandparents because my my maternal grandparents were very supportive of learning what learning meant. Uh, maybe not the grandmother so much, but the grandfather. He read to me, but and we didn't know that that was an important effort. We had a little column for kids in the local newspaper called uh, Uncle Wiggly. And Uncle Wiggly was a a little bunny. And and there was always a little story about Uncle Wiggly that my grandfather would read to me. So I was being read to, and not only that, but for Christmas, I was given a slate a slate is like a blackboard, except it's heavy. And I was taught my ABCs at home before I went to kindergarten. And I, just growing up, I knew that reading was important. It was not stated. It was, it was acted. And my, my paternal grandfather lived with us for a little while, and my paternal grandfather had come from Czechoslovakia, and he spoke fluent Czech to me, so I grew up with two two languages. And um, on Saturdays, summer, fall, winter, spring, that grandfather would say, come on, we're going to go to the library. And we walked, we walked close to, excuse me, close to a mile and 
lo and behold, uh, I, I, I did not learn to read in Czech, but I learned to speak it quite fluently. And, uh, and, and my grandfather would hold my hand when, when we were walking. And I, I, I as I, in retrospect, looked, looked back, that was a very significant thing. He was taking care of me. I was not, I, I felt alone because I was separated from my sisters growing up. I was uh, 12 by the time, 10 or 11 or 12, uh, that we, my, my siblings did not speak Czech. So when I went to live with the family, lo and behold, mother would, mother was happy to be able to speak with me in Czech because her Czech was getting rusty. Mm. <laughs> and so it, it put me at a, in a bad situation. My siblings didn't like the fact that I could speak to mother about things that they didn't know about. Like your secret so, language. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it must have been yeah, quite a yeah. transition because you went from living in what you described as a brick house as an only child to what you described as kind of a rustic living situation. I think there was maybe Very. no running water in the Fargo home with your sisters and parents. So tell us a little about right. that transition. That that must have been... well. That was very painful. There was no running water, no flush toilet, a lot of adjusting. As I like to say today, life is nothing but a series of adjustments. And there's always something coming along. Look at, look at all the adjustments we're making with the government right now. We have, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes, it, it was it was di with difficulty, but manageable because somehow or another, most of the people in the family were lighthearted, and I guess that's the best word I can think of. They, they were, they were. My mother would be singing a song, and I, I don't know if I mentioned that in the book. I think I did. That that uh, my mother had. A repertoire of songs that they were upbeat kind of thing, and she would be doing whatever chores needed to be done, and it was um, it, it it wasn't bad. And I like to sing, and one of the things that has amazed me because of all the years I've spent in dealing with education. I got very sick the first winter in Fargo when I went went to Fargo. Uh, it was, I like to say, you know, I was ice skating when it was when it was still the end of October. I mean, the ground was frozen well, and they they flooded the uh, uh, rinks everywhere in the in the different parks. And there was a lot of attention paid to uh, exercise. We we got out and and went ice skating, and um, 
it, it didn't cost anything. The the parks were free. They were part of the public wonderful things that, that Fargo did for the population. It was quite something. And But I got very sick, and lo and behold, I was in bed for days and weeks. And lo and behold, came a knock at the door on one of the days, finally, and it was a, a, a young man on a bicycle delivering, for me, a bouquet of flowers from two of my teachers. <laughs> oh. I mean, whoever heard of such a thing oh. that te- te- teachers would send flowers to one of the kids. And I, I, to this day, I'm astonished. I mean... So it, it, it was a very moving moment. Well, it would be, and I think it was you were such an outstanding student, and then you carried that love, that very personal love of students into your own teaching. But also, I still want to get at how you came out the way you did when your mother basically said you don't need an education. Maybe it was the flowers from the teacher and the elementary teacher, but also, I mean, your father died when you were young, plane accident, he was a pilot, and yet you went ahead and learned to fly yourself, which for a woman in that era, very unusual, but especially having had your father die that way, and you have this really moving passage in the book where you surprised even yourself when (laughs) you had conquered this learning to fly, and you said to yourself, see, Dad, I'm as good as any son you might have had, because, of course, your father had all daughters, but where, where did that spark, I don't know if you want to, I would call it a feminist spark, but, you know, this idea... I don't know. <laughs> I think it was just a co- a combination of 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 goodness. There there was a lot of goodness, little little pieces. My my sixth grade teacher gave me a a, a quarter a quarter. I think I mentioned that in the book. I think it was a quarter for the month to keep to keep her bulletin boards. <laughs> and I chuckled about that. Yes. To keep the bulletin board taken care of, and and that was the same teacher. That was my sixth grade teacher, and 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 then all those years later, when when we were in in New York, and I went to the alumni office, and I looked up. Her name was Pearl Pearl Bjork B J O R K. Uh, everybody was a Scandinavian there except myself, and and there were twins there that were uh, part Indian, American Indian, and otherwise they were all blue-eyed blondes, and here we were with dark hair and dark eyes. <laughs> but so when you were I, at Columbia, I, the Teachers College, you looked up this Pearl Bjork, this uh, teacher that you had back in yes. Iowa, and you found her name because yes. she had gone to Columbia, too? Oh, isn't that interesting? Yes. But, um, she got her Ph.D. She got her, I, ch- I checked on her. I, she got a Ph.D. and was teaching in, in um, Minnesota. And I wrote to her, and she wrote back. 
she said, did you ever do anything with your art, art, artistic talents? Oh, wow. Well, what I wrote back and told her was I married an artist. My second marriage was to an artist. So that's as close as I got to my artistic yeah. endeavor. Well, your first marriage... Besides, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I just wanted to say I I entered a contest, a local contest. Uh, they wanted uh, students to make a, uh, uh, oh, a poster, a poster uh, for um, speed because they were just beginning to have a lot of traffic. You know, cars were on... Uh, novelty at that stage yet there wasn't much traffic but i i made a a, a funny little poster of an old man looking over a fence at a car whizzing by saying that you'll never reach 70 going 70 <laughs> and, uh. and and it won first prize oh, and uh. first prize was five dollars Five dollar check. Oh, and I, my mother was thrilled. Even I mean, uh, the, the Western Union uh, delivery boy uh, delivered it to the door, and it was pretty amazing that a kid, a, a kid in elementary school, would win five dollars. That's enough to buy groceries for the whole week. Oh, that's a great story. That was not in the book either. That's fascinating. I think you had such a rich life. It must have been hard to decide what to include. But I was just, because you mentioned your second marriage, I thought we should let our listeners know about your first marriage where you fell head over heels in love and had three children very quickly. And then the marriage ended and you were supporting these three children as you went back to school and um, pursued your Started degree. college when they were two, three, and four. Yeah, that's... that. And, and no money. Yeah, so that well, is well, amazing. The thing was, I, I didn't grow up in an academic family, and uh, who could know... The, uh, some of the words that that I had to learn, I I I didn't know. Uh, for, I think it was my sister's mother-in-law that said, "There are scholarships out there." I said, "What's a scholarship?" Well, and I think I I did write about about um, Bob Kibbe. Yes, you Bob, did, Bob. He he was he was such a a joy in my life. He was the dean of students at Drake, and I had to go to him every year and get uh, get my scholarship renewed. I had to keep a B average, and I had financial need because I I had no finances. I think I had like $110 a month, and I had to pay the rent and, and all the all of those things. Anyway, Bob Kibbe then showed up 
when when the um, what was the name of the university without walls? That, Empire State College. The, yes. Yeah. Uh, they they had that they had that uh, first the first graduating class was here in Albany, and Bob Kibbe was chosen to be the speaker, and I was working at the state ed at that time, and I went to hear the speech, and then I got online to to congratulate him for his job. Uh, the position he had, and, and I said, do you remember me? And he looked at me closely, and he said, remind me. And I said, Drake University. And he said, Drake, you're the one with all the kids. <laughs> yeah. Because every time I went to his office, I had to take the three with me. Mm. I, I had a, wom- a woman from my church that gave me her time when I was in class, but that didn't include going to the, 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 to, to the dean of students. So anyway, I always had the three kiddos with me. And, <laughs> and I have to say, today they're all six foot one. They have their own jobs, and they came through all of that. Very well. Yeah, they seem to have had fascinating lives. And along the way, you had another child because you fell in love with Fred Curlin while you were a Drake. But the child was put up for adoption. And the very end of your book, there's this surprise that he appears in your life. And that just seems to make a a wonderful penultimate chapter to your book that um, you reestablished and had a relationship with him. Do you want to talk at all about that? Because there are so many people I know these Uh, days. New York State has just passed a law that lets people find their adoption records, and so many people are searching. Well, David David had the one, two, three, the spit, the spit that you put in the test tube, Mm -hmm. you know, that program, well, there was a match with one of my nieces out in Iowa, and this is a, a, almost two years ago. So he was so excited, he, he got in the car and drove nonstop to Iowa to meet his family out there. And lo and behold, uh, they, they uh, one of the nieces got busy and and had a uh, had a town hall meeting and introduced David to all of his family and they had a <laughs> so he has lots of cousins and and nieces and nephews and all kinds of family and he's very very good he's he expects to work he's a fire chief retired fire chief and not retired. He's got a, a, a he's got a paper job now because he turned sixty. He's turned sixty. Uh, can't believe it. Yeah, time. And, but he was a he was a marine for fifteen years, and then he 
he was he lives in Coney Island, and uh, he has um, he has a home there. He had he had raised two boys with his wife, and then for whatever reason, uh, uh, he has. He is divorced and is is free to travel. Is traveling the world, which is interesting. Yeah. Did anyway, he did he find his birth was, father, Fred Curlin, who oh yes, African American, yes, became a doctor. Did, yes, he yeah. did. His father became a doctor, and and uh, he lives in France in Nice. Hmm. And he came for my 90th birthday, and he came for um, another event. I've forgotten which oh, event. Oh, my goodness. So 60 years later, you reunited with Fred Curlin. Isn't that fascinating? Yes. Wow. Well, and he, he, he calls me every now and then, and we just spoke last week for over an hour just reminiscing and what if and things uh, he had he raised two two boys one has gone into politics and one has become a lawyer and has not found his niche yet as a lawyer but they're very uh, very uh, well spoken both have master's degrees and have done very well academically so that and, and, and as, as david said you see mother you you missed all the two o'clock feedings and the dirty <laughs> diapers oh gosh and then we should probably we've talked over our time limit but you are so fascinating we should probably catch up with the end of your career where you were in Albany and working with special education students and I think you said in your book that your sister in a way was your first special education student because you helped her and you kind of blazed a trail that now is considered standard. One of your um, students that you write about was a a fifth grader, a a girl that you said had a ready smile and was in a wheelchair and was not getting the academics she needed. So you recommended that she be main, we call mainstreamed now, you know, into a regular fifth grade classroom and it worked out well for her, and she taught her classmates about what CP was, and it just seemed like you were kind of a trailblazer with the special education, too. Well, well, my heart was there. My heart was very, very much because of my sister's difficulties, and there was, there was nothing that could be done for her at that stage. And, and it's been a joy to see what is possible today, and in fact, I I have a grandson who is fourteen, and he has some minor problems. And my 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 daughter Wendy, that you've met, I think, uh, sits with him every afternoon because they feel he can't be left alone for long periods of time. And that he'll never be able to live alone. I said, 
Well, we have to look at his IEP. We have to hold all of that together. There's so much. I I guess I feel that I I need to hang around for a little while longer. <laughs> not not too long, but a little while longer because these things need to be continued. We uh, there are group homes for so many of our our, our special kids. And uh, it needs to it needs to be uh, public. Uh, uh, something that you can do with your newspaper is to continue to put that out for for people to be aware of. Because too often it kind of gets swept under the rug a little bit. But those are things that the public needs to be aware of. The big differences between having somebody uh, who has just a slight need. And uh, I, I, I know this this grandson is not going to have a big need, but he's going to have necessary support. And as a society, we, we need more awareness. We need... We need newspapers like your newspaper to continue to bring it up in positive ways. You know, what are the benefits? And uh, and there are so many. I, 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 I worked with the, oh gosh, it's been a while since I thought about that. Eleanor Roosevelt Developmental Services Mm-hmm. I don't know if they exist anymore, but they, uh, the, the leadership in that organization when I worked for them was just amazing. We had a, a psychiatrist who came from Canada and developed programs that were just talking about change. Mm-hmm. You know, we we need to think different about our special, and they had this wonderful building put up over in Schenectady, uh, ODHEC. Right. Does that ring a bell? Yes, yes, it does. They've changed the name, but yes, <laughs> yeah. It it was a it was a just finished building when I worked for ODHEC uh, five or six years, and and the things that I did then were. A change, change. We've got to change things, and that building was a beginning, and and the man who who engineered all of that, I have to think, how, dig up his name, because um, politically, it became a football. It got bopped around an awful lot, but that was the building itself was. Amazing! I don't know if you've ever been there. No, it, no, I haven't. It, it it was just so exciting to see, and and, and the leader, Doctor Hugh Lefebvre, that was his name, Hugh Lefebvre, and he did not have an office. He said, "No, there's nobody over everything. You're, you're all 
a group, you know. I think anyway. it's fascinating that throughout your life, you were attracted in Harlem to a educational leader that was also a revolutionary, and here with special yeah. ed, Dr. Hugh Lefebvre, you've been part of several movements for change. We're out of time, but I wonder if you have any kind of concluding thoughts, maybe on the favorite chapter of your life, or just th- thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with about in you know, over 90 years, what what are the essential lessons that, that are worth sharing? Oh, I, I wish I had thought of that before because there are probably many. Yet, uh, I guess one of my learnings is that there's so much left to be done and we need to we we need to pull together. We I I know when I was at OD Heck we had we had people from every corner of the world who were there. Who were there. I mean they had their PhDs and had studied abroad and uh had come to this country to share their knowledge and and, and I know how I know how difficult it is for some people to rise above what was and 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 to think about what can be we there're just so so many more and and it's made up of a lot of little things a lot of little things you know I I look at Jackie's story as a, a a bellwether kind of program and 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 how important how important those people are to give them a, a hand somebody needs to reach out i mean i am i, I told jackie the last time i saw her i i said you know I, i'm so happy for you i i didn't even ask about her mother but her daughter, her one daughter, I mean, she never married, and she just had the one child who she took care of and raised up. And uh, and, and that could be the story. I, I, if, if the readers of my book find inspiration, it would be with that kind of a story that Jackie presented, Jackie's life, uh, and and to some extent, I guess my own, because uh, you you keep plugging at something, and there are people around who are going to put out a hand and say, "I can help you with this," and and and, and it's a, it's an amazing thing. It happened with the book. I I put off because I didn't know anything about getting a book printed. Well, once I got started, lo and behold, even a a a, a cousin, my my husband's cousin, who I thought was taking off in a different direction, lo and behold, she was an editor. And I was having trouble finding somebody I could afford to help with the editing of the book. 
and it took on a life of its own. And all of a sudden, this cousin appeared in my with sandwiches because uh, I've given up cooking, and people bring sandwiches, and we eat together and and, and chat. And lo and behold, uh, she said. She asked me what I'd been doing, and I said, well, I have this book, but I need an editor now. She said, Wilma, that's what I do. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yes, I'm an editor now. So three, she stayed, she lives in Nova Scotia, and she she stayed with with us for, for three weeks. And we got the editing done. <laughs> oh, so she took your long hand and made it into a book. That's wonderful. And just so people know, the book, um, I got it at Book House at Stuyvesant Plaza. And you can also send for it just by writing to Wilma Beeson Jensen at 20 Leto Road. And that's in Gilderland, New York. And the zip code is 12203. But... Um, and it's also on Amazon. Yes, that's a good way to get it, too. So thank you so much. And I'm going to close with a quote that you have in the book, which I just love. It's in the midst of your section on teaching. And uh, it's about a little boy who felt better once he had some new words. And you wrote, the more words a child has, the stronger the ego I love that. Yes. Yes, I I left that with all the students I've come in contact with because I I watched it happen and I can give you one more little story about that. I uh, when I was teaching four-year-olds one summer there was a a big excavation right around the corner from our school and every day we would the, the weather permitted, we would go for a walk around the block, and I would say, oh, look at the excavation. Well, one day, one day, my little Clinton Nicholas stood with his hands on his, on his, on his um, hips, and he said, what is an excavation anyway? Not only that, but... Next week after that, his mother came to class to find out how he was doing. And and she said, by the way, what's an excavation? <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite stories because he knew the word and he knew what it was. He had asked me, what is an excavation? And I said, Clinton, it's nothing but a digging. It, they're digging a hole. And <laughs> so, and, and, and he got a lot of attention at home talking about an excavation. Yes, enough so that his mother wanted to know. That's great. Yes. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> 